thank you for the fact that we see what you did in the early church and how you want to do those same things today. And I pray, God, you would open our eyes and give us the faith to believe that you still want to do these things, God, as you perform a mighty miracle in this text. I I pray that we would understand why you did it, what the heart behind it was, uh, Lord. And and, uh, I just ask that that we would have the faith to to believe, again, that you want to do these things, Lord, that uh, the healing that you performed uh, through the message of your gospel, that we would all experience some form of healing through your gospel. We know that that's a piece of the message of the gospel. So bless this time. Please fill us with your spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, real quick, if you don't have a Bible, if you just raise your hand real quick and we'll uh, put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along as best as possible. Um, everybody's good on Bibles today, huh? Okay, cool. Now, I have a tendency to go a little fast-paced. Uh, I'll mention scripture. Sometimes I'll have you turn there if you have your Bible with you. Uh, sometimes I'll just reference it. I don't expect you to flip to every reference uh, that I communicate, uh, but primarily we'll be in Acts chapter 3 today. So uh, following along through that text and we'll look at other references to help us understand Acts chapter 3. Now, if you recall, we've been in Acts for the last couple weeks and it really all started uh, with the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave the disciples uh, in Acts chapter 1. Well, we see that He promised the Spirit way back in John 14 and 16. He focuses a lot on uh, about the function of the Holy Spirit and why He's sending them the Holy Spirit uh, and what has to happen for Him to send them the Holy Spirit. Now... In his resurrected form, before he ascends, remember he reminds the disciples that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And he tells them what the Spirit's going to do. It's going to give them power to bear witness of Jesus Christ. Power to share the gospel. And he tells the disciples, you've got to wait in Jerusalem to receive this promise. He gives them direction. They respond faithfully to the direction. And then in Acts chapter 2, lo and behold, promise fulfilled. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and strategically the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples on what holiday, what festival? Feast of Pentecost, right? This was a fulfillment of the original Feast of Pentecost that God instituted way back in Exodus when He gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. This truly was a representation in a holiday that celebrated the birth of Judaism. Now, it's being reborn this holiday. And now it's going to represent the birth of the church. Okay, The church isn't the church without the Holy Spirit. So Jesus sent sends the apostles, the Holy Spirit, sends the disciples, the Holy Spirit, 120, get baptized with the Spirit. They start speaking in tongues, the tongues of men, languages that were um, that were heard by the people that were in Jerusalem during that time period. If you recall, Pentecost was a holiday that it was mandatory for all Jews, even proselytes, men, males, to come to Jerusalem during Pentecost. Okay, It was one of those three holidays that it was mandatory. So you likely had tens, hundreds, 
of thousands, perhaps even millions of people at Pentecost in this time. We don't know the number for sure, but there's a ton of people. Okay, this was all strategic. So God pours out his spirit on the disciples. They start speaking in tongues. The people are like, whoa, they're praising God in my language, but these are just Galileans. How do they know my specific language and how to speak it so clearly? Then Peter stands up, the tongue ceases, and he gives a powerful message. He shares the gospel. And what happens? 3,000 people get saved. Literally in one day, the church goes from 120 to 3,000. Okay, imagine if that happened in our church one day. We would have to move. We would need a bigger building. Uh, 3,000 people aren't fitting in this church. I would be stoked if that happened. But this is really what happened. The church went from 120 to 3,000 from one message. But that message wasn't just because it was uh, really well put together or Peter was some master communicator. It was because of the power of the Holy Spirit through the message. Now, when we ended Acts chapter 2, there's a specific, specific verse that we need to point to that's really the transitional verse uh, to, from Acts 2 to Acts chapter 3, if you would with me. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 43. It says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So, many wonders and signs and miracles were done through the apostles. That's the transition verse to get us to Acts chapter 3, because what Luke is going to share with us is one specific, significant miracle that was performed, but he also shares with us the details and the heart behind why that specific miracle was performed and why he's given us an account of it. See, this miracle that God performs through John and Peter that we'll read about in Acts chapter 3 wasn't just to heal this one man because he was lame and walk. The reason God performed this miracle was to bring healing to multitudes not just one individual the purpose of this healing was so that people would gather together to hear the gospel and be healed by the gospel that's the title of this teaching healed by the gospel healed by the gospel we will see in this passage that there are occasions where the gospel brings physical healing but we've got to understand the point of the physical healing. It's always to point to the spiritual healing, which we'll elaborate on in a little bit. Let's get into the text, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John went up, to pray, uh, went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So there were these different hours that Jews typically went up to the temple to pray. Now, the ninth hour would have been 3 p.m., and coincidentally or not, this was the very hour that Jesus Christ died on the cross when he gave his spirit up. OK, he gives the, the father, commends the, so his spirit to the father. And there he goes. He dies. He gave up his life. Now, this is likely uh, something that the apostles are thinking about as they go up to pray. This is the same time period that Jesus gave up his spirit, that he died on 
the cross. So what we see the Lord doing is taking a Jewish tradition, basically fulfilling it and making it this spiritual thing that has to do with the relationship with Jesus Christ. So Peter and John, they go up to the hour of prayer. Now, because this was a typical time where the Jews would go up to pray, this is strategic because you're going to have a big gathering there. Okay, You're going to have quite a few people there all going to the temple to pray during that time. At least the people that either lived in Jerusalem or were in Jerusalem during this time period. Acts chapter 3, verse 2. A certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. So, we see the location. It's this specific gate called Beautiful, or the Beautiful Gate. And the reason that this gate was called the Beautiful Gate, can you guess why? Because it was beautiful, right? So this gate was right outside of the temple mount. This gate was 75 feet high and it was made of Corinthian brass. This thing was apparently spectacular. Double doors. It probably looked like you felt like you were walking into the gates of heaven. Think about it. Imagine if you walked into church and we had a 75 foot brass beautiful gate. Be like, I want to go in there. So strategically, this guy is placed there likely because people probably like to go through that gate because it was such a spectacular thing to look at now this is interesting it says that he was laid there daily and he's been lame since birth okay so if he's been being laid there daily for some time now there's a extreme likelihood that jesus has walked past this man probably on several occasions jesus though he's likely saw saw this man that was lame He chose to do nothing about it, at least during his ministry, though he was able to heal this man. He never did heal this man. See, this man, though he was lame, though he was in need of God, God never brought this healing through Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that Jesus Christ didn't know this man was in need of healing. That doesn't mean that Jesus Christ doesn't know that this man is hurting. And that's point number one. Jesus knows when we're hurting. Jesus knows when we're hurting. He knew about this man since the beginning of time. He created him in his mother's womb. And he knows this guy is struggling with life. Probably can't work, probably can't do much, probably doesn't have a wife, probably has a few friends. Imagine being lame your entire life from birth. See, Jesus, he knows when we're hurting. He knows what we're walking through. He's not ignorant to it. He knows all things. Now, this man, as we mentioned, was lame since birth. Now, Jesus, he shares a story with us through John In John chapter 9, of another man that struggled with an infirmity since he was born. Now we have to remember, during this time period, if you had some type of infirmity, it was either because of your sin or because of your parents' sin. So Jesus and the disciples are going to encounter this man that's been blind from birth in John chapter 9. Let's read the story. John chapter 9, we'll read a few verses. Verse 1, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, and he was born, that he was born blind? 
So like what we know, you know, uh, corruption comes from sin. They always thought it was personal sin. But look what Jesus says. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You see a baby born blind. You see a baby born lame. And then I do something to you like, God, why would you let this happen? If you already says, you see that promise there that the works of God may be known through him, that God may be glorified through this individual. No one looks at a blind baby and says, God's getting glory through this. You question it, right? We doubt it. Same thing goes on in our lives. When we're going through difficult times, when we're going through hardships, we can assume Jesus doesn't know what I'm going through or Jesus simply doesn't care what I'm going through. And I know that he makes all things work together for good, but I don't believe it. How is he going to make this thing in my life work together for some good? Not just his good, but my good. How could God possibly be glorified through this specific case of suffering? And as we go through suffering, we can have the same false theology that the disciples had. It's because I sinned. It's because I did something wrong. Now we know the Lord disciplines the ones uh, that he loves. But just because we're going through some type of suffering, some type of hardship, that's not directly connected to our sin or the sin that we bring about in our lives. Often it's sin in general, but more important than that, God's allowing that specific thing to happen in our lives so that he gets the glory. That's the promise. Whatever is going on in your life, if you're in the pit of despair, if you just got a death sentence from the doctor, no matter what has happened, God promises, I will use that for my glory and for your good. Nobody believes that in the midst of the trial, or at least most don't, until we see the end, until we're looking back and seeing what God did and seeing why he did what he did. See, Jesus likely walked by this man several times, knew he was hurt and saw that he was hurting. He was also aware of how he was going to heal him in the future through the apostles. So this man... Lame from birth, Acts chapter 3. Outside the gate called Beautiful. It says, verse 2, he was asking alms for those who entered the temple. So alms was strictly giving to the poor, okay? Uh, In that culture, in that tradition, even to this day, that was a very common thing. Uh, You see poor people, you have the means to provide for them, you give to them. But it was a different heart than Christian giving is. It's more of like a religious self-righteous thing. Like, the more I give, the more righteous I am in the eyes of God. That's not the motivation for our giving. At least it's not supposed to be. The motivation for our giving is supposed to be love. Supposed to be joy. God wants a cheerful giver. You get to give because I've given to you. This is an opportunity. It's a privilege to give. It's not something that you just have to do because the Bible says to tithe or the Bible says to give to the poor. It's something that you get to do. Look what I've given you. I've given you all these things. Now you get to give some of it back. It's a completely different heart in the New Testament. So alms, common thing. Even today, as I mentioned, they would give uh, to the poor so that they could appear self-righteous. So this man is expecting alms. Look what happens, verse 3. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. 
What did Peter and John do? They fixed their eyes on the poor man. Now, confession time. How many of you, when you're past or you're at like a stoplight, right? And there's that uh, poor beggar with the sign, whatever. I'm just being honest. I need money for this or that or whatever the sign says. And, and what do you do if you're not going to give him money? You don't look at him, right? I'm just going to look at the light. I'm going to, I'm going to pretend he's not there. If I make eye contact with him, then he's going to come up to my window, right? And you don't look at him. If we're not going to give to the poor guy, we don't want to look him in the eyes. It's like this thing that we imagine. He can't see me if I don't look at him. It's like he sees you. He, he knows you're there. But that's what we do when we're planning on not helping someone. If we're going to help them, we look them in the eyes. Look what Peter and John do. They fix their eyes on the poor person. They look at him. Why? Because they're going to help them, help him. And they're going to help him more than he could ever imagine. See, Peter and John, as they fix their eyes on this poor man, this lame man, they say, look at us. Look at us. Now, the specific reason that they want the guy to look at them is so that he's focused on and understanding what they're about to share with them. Because basically they're going to share uh, with him the gospel and heal this man. But we also see another truth here. See, the disciples, at least before the Holy Spirit came upon them, they weren't much to look at. You got fishermen, you got tax collectors, you got these ordinary guys. In Acts chapter 4, we'll learn next week, they were uneducated, they were untrained men, they were Galileans, they weren't the smartest folks in the world. They really weren't much to look at until now. What's the difference? The Holy Spirit came upon them. And this isn't look at me and all I can do. This is look at me, I look like Jesus. I'm imitating Jesus Christ. See, that's the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to write this down, it's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Peter 1, 3. It says, He's given us His divine nature. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Or other words, uh, in other words, God has given us His Holy Spirit to live the godly life that He lives. See, Peter and John, they were fools. They made a bunch of mistakes before the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they'll still make mistakes, but now they're actually an example worth looking at. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, if we're walking in the Spirit, the Spirit will give us the power to set an example that we can say, look at us. But when people look at your lives, is your, life, is your life a life worth imitating? When people look at your life, do they say, that's, that's like Jesus. Not that you're perfect and I'm not preaching perfection. But they look at your life and, hey, that's a life worth mimicking. Now, ultimately, we're called to look at Jesus and mimic the way that he lived. But he also gives us the power of the Spirit to live the way that he lived. So, as Paul tells us to Timothy, be an example to the believer. As Peter tells the elders, be an example to the flock. The only reason we're able to do this is by the power of the holy spirit with the power of the holy spirit we should be able to say look at us look at me not in this boasting self-glorifying thing but hey man i'm doing my best to mimic and imitate jesus christ now these apostles are something to look at as examples of what believers are supposed to be in acts chapter 3 verse 5 so he gave them his attention expecting to receive something from him what is he expecting? A little change, right? Like any beggar is. Just expecting a little change. 
he has low expectations. He has very low expectations. His life is in a place where it's like, this is what it is. I go outside the temple. I go outside the, the gate called beautiful on a daily basis. And I ask for money. And then I go home. People carry me back home. And, and, and I eat food. And this is what my existence is supposed to be. His expectations of life are so low. It's sad. Now we understand why they got to this place or why he got to this place in this mentality. But we often do this too. We often set ourselves up for failure with low expectations of God. We, we, we look at our lives and say, man, my life is horrible, or I'm going through this, or I'm going through that, and it's been so long. Things are always going to be like this. This guy's been like this since he was born. He has no hope that things are going to change, or at least the text doesn't mention that he has any hope that things are going to change. He's not hoping for healing. He's hoping for a little money just to get by. Low expectations often lead, often lead to little prayers, and little prayers are rooted in a false belief that we worship a little God. And it's simply not true. We worship a big God, so we should have big expectations for our life. We should expect God to do the miraculous. We should expect God to blow our minds with His faith and grace. I wonder how often we limit our prayer life and limit our relationship with God because of our low expectations. We're just expecting a little change. God's like, I want to give you so much more. That's exactly what he's going to do with this man in this text. Let's look, Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter said, first of all, silver and gold I do not have. When the guy heard that, he's like, oh, probably a, a moment of like hopelessness. <laughs> But Peter had something better to give him. And it's not like Peter was lying. You know, it's not like he had, you know, pockets full of gold and silver and he just doesn't want to give this dude a little bit of his money. We got to remember, Peter wasn't a wealthy man. He was a fisherman and he just left fishing to be in ministry. And I'm telling you, ministry isn't a position that you get into for the money. Okay, it's not for the gold and silver. I promise you that. So it's not like Peter's walking up to this guy and his pockets are loaded, man. That message, it just made me all this money, but I don't want to give you any of it no 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 he literally probably had nothing on him probably wanted to give the guy something so he gave him what he did have he couldn't give him what he didn't have he didn't have the silver and gold but he did give him what he does have and that's jesus christ and any of us despite what financial troubles we may be in despite the lack or the perception of 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 lackness that we may have in our lives we can't give what we don't have, but all of us can give what we do have. And what Peter gave this man was the most valuable treasure of all, a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, this man, he's expecting money. And what he's going to get in return is a healing, full-fledged healing, and a relationship with the Lord. See, this man, he's thinking, I just need a little change to get through my day. And God's thinking, you need a lot more than that, buddy. You need way more than that. See, sometimes what we think we need is different than what God thinks we need. 
And guess who's right? God, we're not. Sometimes I think I need this or I need this or I need this or I need this or I need this. And God says, no, no, you don't need any of that. You need you need this thing over here. And the thing that he gives us is always greater than the thing that we wanted. The thing that he gives us is always greater than the thing that we could imagine. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. This guy's asking, he's thinking, just a little change. God's like, bro, I'm going to blow your mind. I'm going to heal you. And you're going to go to heaven. You're going to have a relationship with me. I want to give you so much more than you're expecting. So Peter tells this man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. See, sometimes we think we just need a little handout. But what we really need is the power of the Holy Spirit to rise up and walk. That's exactly what this man is given. No, 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 no. You don't need another handout. You need the power of the Spirit to walk in the Spirit, to walk out this lifestyle that I've called you to. You don't need to ask for alms anymore. Now you're in a position where you can at least help take care of yourself. Acts chapter 3, verse 7. And he took him by the right hand, and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Now, when Luke mentions in the original Greek, feet and ankle bones, it's the only time that this phrase is used in the Bible. Why? Because Luke is a physician, and this was a medical term. He's not just saying like, oh, the guy just stood up, he was made low. He's like getting to the specifics, like the ankle bone was healed and brought together. Okay, he's getting to like, God mended the bones. Okay, God brought the bones together. Now his bones are in shape. It's not just like, oh, the guy had weak legs and now he has strong legs. No, like God did some supernatural, great physician surgery on this man through essentially a prayer. But this man... As Peter reaches out his arm, it says he took him up by the right hand and lifted him up. For this man to even reach his hand out towards Peter and get back on his feet required faith. This man had to believe that the gospel could heal him. And that's point number two. Faith in the gospel brings healing. Faith in the gospel brings healing. Imagine if this guy's like, no, nah, I don't believe it. I'm just going to lay here. It's like, bro, you're healed. Um, <laughs> you could get up now and you're like, nah, I don't believe this Jesus stuff. I don't believe that this gospel actually brings healing. No, he believed enough to reach out his hand and allow Peter to bring him up. Same holds true for us. If we want to experience the healing that the gospel brings, we got to believe in it. In Romans chapter 10 Verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For this man, he experienced both physical and spiritual healing. And even in this present age, God does perform physical healings. Sometimes the gospel heals us physically, but always the gospel will heal us spiritually. That's why he says in Isaiah chapter 53, quoting what would happen to the Messiah by his stripes, we are healed. He's not talking about just like physical healing there. He's talking about spiritual everlasting healing because of what Jesus did on the cross. We can be healed for eternity. That's the promise of the gospel. Not all of the lame and not all of the sick and not all of the blind are going to be made well. Physically, 
but anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be made well spiritually. But we got to believe that. We got to believe that the gospel can heal us. We have to have faith in that. Sometimes there's things in our lives that we assume Jesus can't heal this area. He can take care of this, and I know he delivered me from this, that, and the other, but, but this thing, I don't know that I have the faith that, that Jesus can take care of this specific thing. It could be an emotional issue, spiritual issue. It could be a physical issue. And what we tend to do is look for healing and satisfaction in all the wrong places. And we think, this is how our mind works, physical infirmity, I need a physical something, whether it's a doctor or medicine or something, to fix the physical infirmity. I'll show you an example of just that. In Mark chapter 5, another healing that Jesus performed, on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, he encounters this woman that had been bleeding for 12 years. And look what happens. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So this woman, she's got a physical ailment, a physical infirmity. She's been bleeding for 12 years straight. She's gone to every dock around the block trying to figure out, hey, how can I be made well? And what happened? She spent all that she had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. See that? Often, when we purpose to find healing in the world and satisfaction from relationships, career paths, these other temporary things that don't truly satisfy us, we end up worse off than we were before. She was worse. Since she grew worse, she didn't get any better. These physicians offered her nothing. Until she has this encounter with Jesus and she touches the hem of his garment and then she's made well. Now, I'm not saying that don't go to the doctor. I'm definitely not saying that. There's certain scenarios where you got to go to the doctor. What I am saying is sometimes our physical infirmities are spiritual and they are not physical. They appear physical and we think physical means to fix the physical. A lot of times they're actually spiritual and only spiritual things in certain scenarios, can heal the physical. So, I was sharing this, I think, two weeks ago, with Acts chapter 1, uh, when I was in Fort Lauderdale, but I left part of it out. Um, so, when when I was uh, uh, back in Florida, and uh, uh, before I actually went to that service that Saturday night, uh, I was feeling like garbage. And I didn't know, it was like nothing happened. Uh, I, I wasn't sick. I knew I didn't have a cold, but I was like physically exhausted and drained and I was on vacation there was no reason for it and I'm going dude what's wrong with me I'm like I'm talking to my mom talking to Elizabeth like dude I feel like garbage and I don't know why church opportunity comes and I'm like I don't really want to go but I think I need to go it was to the point where I didn't even want to work out okay so if you know me if I don't have the strength to work out there's a problem there okay that's a problem so this is how bad I was feeling Literally, I go to the service, worship starts, I have this experience with God as soon as the worship started, gone. No more physical ailment. It blew my mind. I should know this, right? I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor, 
But sometimes I forget and I don't always recognize that sometimes my physical infirmities can only be healed through spiritual means, not physical means. There was also a time uh, when I first got saved. I was in Calvary House. We were playing football, playing tackle football uh, with no pads. Okay, I was growing in wisdom. All right. Uh, Not very wise. Um, so basically, uh, I caught a pass up the middle and the, uh, the end zone was about, I don't know, five, 10 yards away. And one of my buddies who played professional baseball, he's like this big, like 230 pound guy. He's standing in the way and I'm going, dude, I'm getting to that end zone in my mind. Right? So I lower my shoulder. I scored the touchdown, but he landed on my knee and you just heard this loud pop. You could hear it all the way across the field. Oh, shoot, this isn't good. Of course, me being stubborn and unwise, I try to stand on it. Nope, that's not happening. Uh, so that was Christmas Eve. Christmas Day, I end up uh, in the in the hospital. I had to go to the ER. My knee was like, looked like a watermelon. And so I go to the ER and the guy goes, bro, you destroyed this thing. He said, I've never seen a knee with so much fluid in my life. This is what the doctor said at the emergency room. So I'm like, great. Yeah, that's great news, you know. Uh, and, and so he does an x-ray and he finds a fracture on, uh, sorry, I just spit, a fracture on the left side of my knee. And he said, you definitely had to have at least torn uh, one ligament, probably your ACL, completely through, okay? So I'm in a wheelchair. I'm at the church trying to do what I can in a wheelchair, not much. And this pastor comes by. His name is Pastor Greg, I remember. And he just sees me and he like does one of the second looks and he's like, bro, can I pray for you? It's like the spirit nudged him to pray for me. He laid hands on me, prayed for me. The next day I went to get an MRI and the fracture was gone. Okay. The fracture wasn't there anymore. Now, dead serious. It was crazy. Okay. You can see a fracture. MRI is way more clear than an x-ray. You can see a fracture on the x-ray and not on the MRI. It isn't there. Now, I did still have a little issues with my knee. I had like a slight, and I don't know, I can't explain this. I had a slight, uh, a really small tear in my meniscus and a, and a slight tear uh, in my MCL. And I was like back working out again in a month. Um, but it, it was crazy. And I know that this was the power of God that brought some level of healing into my life. I always ask, like, maybe I wonder if I had more faith <laughs> or if Pastor Greg had more faith because he does use other people's faith. <laughs> like I was like, but he did bring a level of healing, which was uh, miraculous. The point is. Sometimes our physical ailments can only be healed through spiritual means. Just as we see in Mark chapter 5. Also as we see here in Acts chapter 3, if you would with me, Acts chapter 3, verse 8. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. So how does this guy respond? He gets excited. He gets ecstatic. He jumps up. He walks with John and Peter. He is praising God. He's so passionate and excited about the power of the gospel in his life. That's point number three. Get excited about the gospel. Get excited about the gospel. Is your faith exciting? Is it still exciting? Just as this man responded in this moment, 
That should be the way our hearts respond on a daily basis to the gospel. The gospel isn't just something that we received, whatever, months ago, years ago, decades ago, when I was a kid. The gospel is for today. That's why he says, my mercies are new every morning. That isn't just wake up and recognize that I'm forgiven. Wake up and recognize how good God is. That he's given you another chance today. You need the gospel today. You didn't just need it back then. You need it each and every day. And that's something that should bring us so much joy. Oh my gosh, this is the wretch that I am. And this is how good God is. That he would bestow this grace on me. That I could have a relationship with him now. An abundant life now. And at eternity. Spend eternity with him in heaven. It's something that we should always be excited about. It's not something that we should get used to. It's not something that we, oh yeah, I was saved yesterday, I'm saved today, grace is good. No. The Bible tells us actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 24, the context specifically is relationships before and during, before salvation and, and, and when you get saved. But look what he says in verse 24. He says, brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. That state? Well, that's a vague term. He's speaking of, yes, if you're single, if you're married, yada, yada, yada. Don't let anything get in the way between you and a relationship with God. Because your relationship with God is where you will truly find your contentment. But I want you to remember the state that you were at when God first called you probably a state of brokenness remember when you first accepted the lord you know he came into your life how ecstatic were you how excited how passionate i know so many people they first get saved i'm going to be a missionary okay i'm going to africa i'm going to asia i'm going to south america i'm doing this thing god's called me to ministry in some capacity and then time goes on what happens lose the zeal lose the passion why because we forget how great the grace of God is. That's why he says, remain in that state in which you were called. Don't forget what God did for you and remember it. Reflect on it on a daily basis. If you've lost your joy, that's not because of the gospel. The gospel calls us to have joy on a regular basis. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. I see too many Christians... Now walk around with this somber look and this, they're always sad and they're always complaining about their life. And I get going through hard stuff, but if you're like that every day, then you're reading a different book than I'm reading. And you're believing a different gospel than I'm reading. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, not sadness, okay? It's not a bad thing to be sad on occasion. Jesus even wept on several occasions. But if that's how you're like all the time, there's a problem there. God wants us to get excited about our faith, that we get to live for God each day. His mercies are new. Yes, that should produce in us a zeal and a passion. I get to live my heart out for God today. I'm so excited for the grace that he bestowed on me back then, but I need that same grace in this moment. It's living out the gospel each day, recognizing the greatness of God's grace every moment of every day. I want to point something else out here too. In Acts chapter 3 verse 8, look what it says again. It says, he leaping up stood and walked. This guy's never walked before. He's never walked. He's never taken one step, okay? He never learned to walk as a baby. He's been lame since the womb. This is the first steps he's ever taken. It's not just like, this isn't like rehab, you know, when you're like suffering an injury and you need like the walker. No, we're not talking about that. It's not like he's learning to walk like he was a baby. This guy is leaping. His legs are strong. 
If you've ever seen someone that's lame, that hasn't used their legs their whole life, how skinny are their legs? They're tiny. They're like smaller than like forearms. This dude has legs that he can jump on. This is grace upon grace. God not only healed him, but he made his legs strong. The Bible tells us that God gives us grace upon grace. Just when you think his grace is sufficient, here comes more grace right around the corner. That's what this was here. And this is what God has done since times past, even in the Old Testament. Real quick story in 2 Kings chapter 5. So there's this commander of the Syrian army, enemies of God named Naaman. Now, This guy has leprosy. He's a commander, which means he's in battle. He probably has cuts, bruises, sunburns. You think about a warrior during that time period in like desert type circumstances. Not only that, he's a leper. Okay, so just imagine his skin. This isn't a guy that you would like see on a clear cell commercial or some type of skin lotion commercial. Okay, this guy's skin is leprosy and commander you think about all those things and what that would look like look what happened so in second kings chapter five i'll summarize a bit his servant who's a jew uh ends up uh telling him uh about a guy named elisha who is a, a prophet and performs miracles so he finds out about this elisha guy and the god that he worships and he asks he says hey i need to get in contact with this guy i need to be healed for my leprosy and he has this encounter with elisha and elisha tells him i want you to go dip in the jordan seven times and naaman's like dude I don't want to do that. Why? Because he doesn't want to expose his leprosy. A bunch of people use the Jordan for cleaning water and all these different things. It's like, I don't want everyone to know that I'm a leper. I want to cover it up. He says, can I go to one of these other places that's more secretive, that's, that less people will see me? He says, you want to be healed, you've got to do it God's way. You might want your own way of healing. God says, no, if you want to be healed, you have to do it my way. There's a specific process for each individual. So Naaman, reluctantly, he does it. He dips in the Jordan. Seven times. Look what happens. Second Kings chapter five, verse 14. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. See that? He didn't just give him like, uh, I healed your leprosy. He gave him the flesh of a child. He gave him like baby skin. Okay. How soft is a baby skin? Okay, compare that to a leper that's a commander in an army. He didn't just give him what he asked for. He gave him so much more than he asked for. This is grace upon grace. God so often gives us so much more, once again, than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. That's exactly how good God is. Acts chapter 3, verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. God didn't just do this work because he loved one man. Yes, he loved that man dearly, but he loves all of these people. So he does that miracle. All these people see that guy every day lame and they're like, this dude is jumping around. We've seen him lame since he was a little child. And now he's jumping around and these people marveled. They were amazed. See, God wasn't just doing this miracle for this one man. He was doing it for everyone there to gain their attention so that, as we'll see Peter share the gospel, he was giving the people the opportunity 
to hear the gospel. And this is the reason why God does miracles. He does miracles not just to perform the physical healing of an individual. He performs signs and wonders and miracles to get the attention of people so we understand who he is and what the gospel message is. Jesus makes this very clear. In John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, Jesus just fed a multitude of people and the people are following Jesus because they want more bread. They're hungry again and Jesus basically rebukes them. And then he says this, the people respond, John chapter 6. Verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. All the other works of Jesus Christ and what he does even in the present and through the apostles in the past, all those works, all those miracles was to point to the work. The work of what? The work of the cross, believing on the one whom he sent. Everything that God is doing, all the works he performs is to point people to the gospel. And we put such a significance on physical healings. And I want to see this and I want to see that. But the reason the Lord does all of those things is so that people recognize who he is and what he's capable of spiritually to bring us to a place of salvation. Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. This is a chance for Peter to give God the glory. He's not telling these people, look at me. He was telling that one guy, look at us, so he could hear what Peter was about to say. But he says, don't look at me. The only reason this ever happened is because of God, the power of God. So he points to God, so God will get the glory. Now, as he points to God, he begins to share the gospel. And exactly what we were just talking about, the Lord as we see revealed through this text, he was using the physical healing to inspire spiritual healing. That's point number four. Physical healings inspire spiritual healings. Physical healings inspire spiritual healings. If you're going to marvel about a healing... I'll tell you something that you should marvel about, even more than a physical healing. And he points them to Jesus Christ. See, Peter knows that this physical healing towards this man can only do so much for these people. Yeah, they can marvel, they can get excited, but he knows what's really going to impact them is sharing the word of God with them. Why? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. No one can get saved from watching a miracle. It doesn't happen you can only get saved by hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel that's the only way someone can get saved you could see god do something awesome and yeah that miracle might like oh that was god what's this about i want to understand what the gospel is but just seeing a god look at the uh children of israel they saw the red sea parted walked on dry ground. They saw manna, food, fall from the sky. They saw a rock with water flowing out of it. And guess what happened? Most of them died in the wilderness. Why? It says because of unbelief. 
Because unbelief, they were following the signs, but they weren't actually following God, meaning they didn't have a relationship with Him. Signs don't save people. The gospel saves people. And this, again, is the point of why God does the miracles. He parted the Red Sea. He did all this stuff so that they recognized who He is, how much He loves them, so that they would respond to Him in relationship. Jesus makes this very clear in the beginning of His ministry. In Luke chapter 4, after He shares His mission statement, basically quoting Isaiah 61, He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And He basically goes on and communicates what his mission is here on this earth, okay? Now, he tries to, from the very beginning, help people that are confused about his purpose here on this earth. And look what he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 23. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. We've seen you heal other people. Why don't you heal yourself? It's, uh, uh, he's making reference to the cross. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Okay, He wasn't sent to all the widows, he was sent to one widow. Verse 27, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. What is he trying to do? God heals the one physically to inspire spiritual healing in the many. He does one miracle in one scenario so that you recognize who he is. He doesn't want us following the signs and the wonders and the miracles. In fact, he tells us that those who seek for a sign are an adulterous generation. Not that we shouldn't pray for confirmation, but when we're seeking signs and that's what our relationship with the Lord consists of, then we're not really seeking the Lord, we're seeking signs. He says, walk by faith, not by sight. He says, don't, don't just follow when you can see, follow when you don't see and you can't see and you're unsure and things are unclear. Again, Jesus, just as he's done in times past, will often heal the one physically to heal the multitude spiritually. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. We'll pick up the pace. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. This is important. He says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of the patriarchs. We're not talking about like a new God, like Jesus came and he's a new God and he's different than Yahweh. No, this is the same God. This is important for the Jewish people. They knew they weren't supposed to worship another God. Jesus, uh, sorry, Peter is saying this is the same exact God. And look at how he introduced him. He says, but you denied the Holy One and the just. This phrase, Holy One, is used to describe Yahweh some 40 plus times in the Old Testament. This was a title for Yahweh. Once again, Peter is saying, Jesus is Yahweh. Okay, Jesus is Yahweh. It's the same God. He says, you killed the Prince of Life, verse 15, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Speaking of the gospel, Jesus died, but he also rose again from the dead. Acts chapter 3, verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, 
whom you see and know, yes, the faith, faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So, Peter, as he's communicating this message, he communicates the gospel. Once again, he communicates the fact that they have responsibility in the death of Jesus, as do we all, even though they weren't the ones that hammered the nails. We're all responsible for the death of Jesus. He didn't just die for one. He died for the entire world and the sins of the world. And what Peter attempts to do is point them back to the Old Testament. What they're taught, what they read. He says, look, again, verse 18. Those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. This isn't like some new thing. This is a fulfillment of the old things. The prophets talked about the suffering serpent. They talked about him time and time again. We see it in Isaiah 53. We see it in Psalm 22. We see it across the scriptures. The Jews were confused about the comings of Christ. They focused so much on uh, one coming, specifically the second coming, that he would come as this Davidic type king, that they missed the passages about his first coming, that he'd first come as the suffering servant, then he would come as the Davidic type of king. Now, this was something that the prophets spoke about for centuries past. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about this a little further. To help us understand the magnitude that we live in an age that we've received the gospel. And we've seen the plan of God played out. First Peter chapter 1 verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them. Was indicating that he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. And the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, that they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. He says, you don't know how blessed you are, that you get to understand the gospel and you get to receive the gospel. The prophets were just writing this stuff down, not understanding the implications. They were just like, all right, God, I'm writing this. I don't really get it, but I'm writing this thing down and I trust you're going to fulfill it. Some way, the prophets that wrote this stuff down, they didn't understand the fulfillment of it. But we live in an age where we see the fulfillment. Jesus Christ died. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets in all the Old Testament. We don't just get a piece of the message as those did before us, or before the gospel, we get the whole thing. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Then he says, after he shares the gospel, look what he says. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So final point, point number five. The gospel requires repentance, okay? The gospel requires repentance, okay? He shares the gospel and he says, this is how you ought to respond to the gospel. Notice he didn't just say, hey, um, just say this sinner's prayer. No, there's repentance involved in it. We'll talk about the sinner's prayer in a second. See, I think in our culture, and it's one of the reasons I believe we're in the lukewarm church age, We sell a very watered-down gospel. 
you know, and I think altar calls are great. And I think obviously we got to have a chance to respond to the gospel. But saying a sinner's prayer doesn't save you. It's, it's the faith behind the prayer. It's something genuine that has to happen in your heart where you're enlightened to the truth of who Jesus is. It can't just be like something compelling and I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to just say this prayer. The prayer in and of itself doesn't save us. It's the faith and how we respond to the gospel message. The gospel requires repentance. Repentance simply means a 180. I'm going to turn from my old lifestyle and I'm going to turn to Jesus. I'm not preaching perfection once again. I'm not preaching a works-based faith. We're saved by grace through faith. But what is faith? What is faith? In the Bible, it's the word trust. It means I'm going to not trust in my old lifestyle. I'm going to trust in the lifestyle that Jesus has for me. And I might slip up. I might stumble. I might make some mistakes along the way. But I'm purposing to turn from this way and turn towards Jesus. If you don't believe me, let me show you. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is a crucial point of the epistle to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, look at what Paul says. But uh, you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Okay, if you've been taught by Jesus, this is what you should pull from it. Look what it says in verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and we be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. He said, if you've been taught the same gospel that we're preaching, God tells us to turn from the former conduct and turn to Jesus. That's the repentance thing. I'm turning from my old life and turning to Jesus. That doesn't mean, once again, that we might not make a mistake over here again. But my purpose, my intentions are walking with Jesus, walking towards Jesus, because my trust is in Jesus. Peter preaches repentance because it's essential to the gospel message. He goes on, Acts chapter 3, verse 20, And that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets since the word began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Why does he mention Moses? He mentions Moses because he was like the most revered prophet. Moses was the one that God used to get them out of Egypt. Okay, so if Moses says it, we're going to go by it. Now, specifically, I believe um, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 19. I, I could be wrong, but I believe it is there. Uh, anyways, this was a prophecy that was given to Moses that there would be this prophet to come. And literally, how you responded to this prophet to come would determine your eternal destination. Okay. Now, the Jews, they had different beliefs about who this prophet was. Most believed it was a reference to the Messiah. Some believe maybe it's a different type of prophet. What Peter is making clear is that the prophet that Moses, the one you revere so much, was talking about was Jesus. And how you respond to Jesus and his message will determine the outcome of your eternal destination. He goes on, Acts chapter 3, verse 24. 
Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. He says all of the prophets were pointing to Jesus. Okay, all of them were pointing to what Jesus was going to do. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying, Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He reminds them of the original promise made to Abraham that all the nations, the entire world will be blessed through your seed. What is he pointing at? He's pointing to the identity of that seed. And Paul clarifies this specifically. In Galatians chapter 3, almost there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul, specifically speaking of the promise that was made to Abraham, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed, he says. Galatians 3, 16. He says, now to Abraham and his seed... Where the promise is made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is the Christ. What Paul is telling us is that promise that God made through Abraham, it wasn't just fulfilled through Isaac. Okay, It would be fulfilled and it wasn't just fulfilled through the Jewish people. He doesn't say through your seeds, because of the Jewish people, I'm going to bless the entire world. He says through one Jewish person. I'm going to bless all the nations. This person was the person of Jesus Christ. All the nations would be blessed through this seed. Singular. That's exactly what Peter wants them to understand. This isn't like a accept Jesus or you're judged. Okay, there's truth to that. This is accept Jesus so you can receive the promise that God made to Abraham that he'll bless you. Not just here, but for eternity. Closing out, verse 26. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Hear that? When we turn to Jesus, Jesus helps us. He he helps turn us from the iniquities. It's not just like, I'm not doing this and now I'm doing this. That's a workspace faith. No, I don't want to do this anymore. I want Jesus. And as we pursue Jesus, he helps us overcome these things over here. And as we walk with him and talk with him and spend relationship with him, he continues to grow us. So there's less of this and there's more of Jesus. The point that Peter is getting at is only through a relationship with Jesus, not only can you be forgiven, But can you overcome your sins? If you want to be made well, if you want to experience healing, you got to turn from this way and walk His way. Turn to the gospel. See, this miracle that was performed in Acts chapter 3. And so much emphasis we see on the miracle, right? And even like I'll hear pastors teach this uh, passage I have in the past. And there's so much about this amazing miracle that Peter and John did. But the point of the miracle was to get the gospel message to the multitudes. But again, in our mind, we want to see the physical. We want to see the healings. We want to see all this stuff. And it's not a terrible thing, but we're missing the point. And our perspective might be off. He wants us to focus on The spiritual. He did the miracle to get the attention of the crowd so that they could all be saved. Guess what happens? Okay, This lame man, he gets healed. Guess what happens later on? He dies. You know how I know that? Because everyone dies, okay? It doesn't tell us in the story. But we all die, right? So this healing was just a temporary fix. It was just a temporary fix. 
to help him understand that there's an eternal solution. There is. And that eternal solution is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the Lord, yeah, there's times where He'll heal us physically, but more than anything, He wants to heal us spiritually. But we've got to believe that He's able to do it. And if we want that healing, we've got to turn from the old way and turn to the new way. There's repentance that's required even with the healing process. If I say I accepted Jesus and my life's still a mess, what are you doing with your life? Are you still doing everything you were doing over here? Or are you actually pursuing Jesus because he promises that he's the great physician and healing, the healing that we're all longing for is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the fact that you love us enough to heal us in, in so many different ways, emotionally, physically, sometimes even, uh, sometimes, or always spiritually, sometimes physically. God, and I just pray that we would believe that, that that is your title, that you are the great physician. And the places that we're hurting in our lives, as we see in this text, sometimes we can be struggling with the same thing and, and get hopeless and, and think, hey, I just got to get by with life just as this, uh, this, this lame man did. But I pray that we would believe that what you want for us and what you have for us is so much greater than we could ever imagine. You truly want to bestow grace upon grace, God. We know your timing is absolutely perfect. Help us to to see the truth of your word that you truly do make all things work together for good, not just for your good, but for our good. Lord, sometimes we struggle with that. Help us believe it. We know there's an ultimate healing that waits. And we look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen.